We are going to be over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're going to look at a story. We have not actually looked at this story too many times. We have on a, a few occasions. But uh, as I was going back over some of the notes, I was pretty dissatisfied with some of the things that uh, we were, was going on there. So I wanted to find out some more things about this. So I had an extra extra week to take a look at this one, simply because last week we detoured. How many remember where we were at last week? One of the things I did forget to mention about last week was that um, we were telling you the difference between the second time Joseph was in fear and the first time and the other people when they came into fear, their minds got engaged. They began to reason. With Joseph on the second time, the thing that was different was he engaged the reason. He engaged the mind, but he did not close off his spirit. And the Spirit of God was still able to talk to him and give him revelation on what to do after he saw that. It made me think of Brother Hagen and some of the things he would teach us. One of the things he would repeat over and over again from the time that we were in school to all the time after I've ever heard him is he said, it is possible to have faith in your heart and doubt in your head. What I saw with Joseph last week gave me a greater understanding of that statement than I've ever had before. Because when you have that reasoning and that fear might come up, that caution might come up, and you begin to look out and see something like Joseph did. But you stay open in your heart. You, stay, you keep faith. Father, I know you told me to come back to Judea from Egypt. I know you told me to do that, but I see this, and I'm cautious. He engaged his mind. There was a doubt in his mind whether he should go there, but he kept his spirit open and his faith still believed in what God spoke and God was able to give him more revelation on that. So that always helped me to, uh, well, that was helping me to understand that statement of Brother Hagin's better. Maybe it will do so for you as well. But we're back over here looking at the healing miracles. And this is an interesting one. And we're going to take a look at the things that were surrounding it. And I was not able to get everything in your notes. So there may be some other things that you... Uh, might find worthwhile to write down. But in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on them. Now, this region of Decapolis, it doesn't stick as as well as some of the other regions. This is not a Judea. A Jewish region. This is a Roman legion. Roman would, would uh, divide the territory up into regions. Uh, we are real familiar with three of them. Three of them are Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Those are Roman um, uh, regions that they had set up as far as governing. So they would take a governor and put it over each of the regions. Well, there is the area of Decapolis. If we have the map, we can throw that up there on the screen. And just to give you an idea of where this is, uh, if you're on looking online, you won't be able to see my nice little green pointer. But the area in orange is what is referred to as the capitalist. It is actually the region of ten cities. And I've seen a list of the ten cities, and I've also seen the two are in question. It may be these two, maybe these two, whatever it might be. This is the region of the capitalist. Now, I have this up here on the map because I want you to see this in relation to everything else. This is Judea. We're very familiar with Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. This is the region of Galilee. We are very familiar with Galilee. Jesus spent a lot of time in the Galilean ministry. That's why it's separated Galilean ministry because it's way up over here in the northern part. Judea is down here in the south. And you all remember my reference to walk through the Bible? I love the way that they did this because you have the two main regions, Galilee up here in the north, Judea in the south, and what do you have in between? There is some area in between. Anybody know what it's called? Samaria. <laughs> you have some area in between Galilee and Judea, and that is the region of Samaria. That always helped me to remember where that all was. This is how... how what is the... What is the, the um, my, my phrase is, is escaping me right now. They were... They were so racist in the Jewish people against the Samaritans that what they would do if they needed to go up to Galilee, 
is they would go from Judea out into the area of Perea and up into Galilee that way so that they could avoid going through Samaria. This is why it was looked on funny with Jesus when he passed through Samaria because Jewish people don't do that. They go around. Now, you are familiar with the area of Perea. How many of you know that? <laughs> John the Baptist's ministry was based out of the region of Perea. He would come over over this side. Many times the Bible refers to the uh, east side of the Jordan. That is generally when they're referring to the area of Perea. So if you ever see that mentioned in the, in the Bible, that's it. In Dumia, that is another one. You all know what a Dumia is as well. It's just you know it by a different name. It is the region of, and it sounds just like it, Edom. That is where the Edomites come from. But they just renamed a lot of the regions. So this is what Jesus has done now. I want you to see this on this. He was over here in the area of Galilee in the last couple of miracles we took over. Remember, he got on the boat and he came over here to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He did the, the one ministry. He cast out the legion of demons. And then he goes back over to the other side. We picked him up over there. He went over here to the region, which is Sidon and Tyre, which are right over here in this green area. He went out and we had the one miracle with the uh, Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. And then Jesus kind of went on a tour and it says he went east. The history books actually tell us more about this. But he went east on this, came over here, skirted, according to Mark, we skirted the area of the Sea of Galilee and then came down into the area of Decapolis. And that brings us to our story of where we're at. So that just gives you the picture of what was going on and how that all transpired. Just wanted you to get a chance to have that picture because sometimes when you can see it in your head, it helps out. But he went through that whole area of Sidon and Tyre and really we only have the uh, one or two miracles or events that occurred during that probably because he spent most of that time ministering to his disciples, to his followers, to the people who followed after him. He was building them up. He was encouraging them, getting them ready for the things of the ministry because the opposition to Jesus is picking up. So he wants to build them up to get them ready for what is to come. And then he comes back down to this region and uh, they don't get a break anymore. So again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee and they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to put his hand on him. Some translations will call this the man who was both deaf and mute. They use the word mute there instead of impediment of speech. That is a wrong translation. If you have a Bible and it translates that word as mute, scratch it out and put in the right one. He is not mute. He has the ability to speak. He just cannot speak clearly. There is something that is impeding his clear speech. This word is the only, only time this is used is here in Mark's gospel. It is used one other time in the Greek language as far as the Bible is concerned, and that is in the Septuagint. That is in a particular verse, if I remember correctly, it is Isaiah 35 and verse 6. And it is a prophetic uh, uh, a prophecy about the ministry of Messiah, and it speaks to him as releasing those with an impediment to their speech. Very interesting the way that that is tied up. This is the place where we see this. He is able to make sounds. He is not mute. He is able to make sounds, but apparently not able to make them clearly. How, whether he gets some sounds out, and other ones, we don't know. We don't know any of that. We just know that there was something about him that caused him to have an impediment to his speech. Now, Jesus has been in this region before. As we mentioned to you, the man in the Gadarenes, the, uh, the man with the legion, probably were even two of them there, and they cast out the demon. Remember, Jesus said, don't get in the boat with me. What did he tell them to do? Go, tell all your relatives, tell all the people in your hometown, tell them about Jesus. Tell, that's one of the few times he said, go and tell them. So then Jesus does this big tour and goes all the way around. Then he comes back down and he comes right back to the region around where this man was going and preaching them about, about him. Hey, Jesus took care of me. Jesus helped me. So now he's coming back down into this area. So he's been here before. 
Now, any other teachings and any other healings, any of the things that went on along the way, we don't know about it. They weren't recorded. It doesn't mean they didn't happen because most of the works of Jesus did not get written down. We know that from the... They said if we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be enough paper. We couldn't write them all down. So we don't know what else occurred during that time. But there are some things we do know from this. Now, first off, we see that they bring him to Jesus begging, please heal him. Now, I, put, I think I put this in your outline. I don't know how much of this I left in your outline, how much I didn't. But begging is not faith. And the confidence that word-based faith brings cancels the flesh tendency to beg. Begging comes from your flesh, not from your spirit. It's your flesh man. It's your flesh man trying to earn something. Confident faith, Bible-based faith, will negate the need to beg. But if you give in to begging, you will also cancel out your Bible-based Bible -based faith. It's not going to write out. You can't operate in both. They came begging that Jesus would do something. Now, flesh doesn't receive on faith principles. Begging won't receive on faith principles. Flesh doesn't receive on faith principles, but by presumptions of its own devising. If you are in begging in any way, I can guarantee you, you are on, you are on flesh, not faith, and you have devised something on the inside of you that tells you, that presumes that God will do this if I do this. There's no Bible-based faith there. Because Bible-based faith will never lead you to beg in your prayers. As soon as you begin to hear the words out of your mouth, Oh God, please do this. I'm begging. Just <laughs> slap yourself upside the head. Get yourself out of that. Don't keep going that direction. Because you're taking yourself down the wrong road. It's not going to help. Jesus pulls this man away from the begging. Now, your flesh wants to either be lazy and take what belongs to others, that's a flesh thing, or earn by what it is comfortable with. I either want to steal or take what belongs to other people, or I want to earn it by whatever I'm comfortable doing. I'm going to earn this from God, and I'm comfortable begging, or I'm comfortable doing this. And God may say, I want you to do this. No, I'm not comfortable doing that. If you notice, most of the time that Jesus was interacting with people that we have in the, in the healing ministries, he was giving them something to do that would get them outside of the realm of the flesh, outside of the realm where they would earn it, outside of the realm where they could even take it. He got them outside of being lazy, and he got them outside of doing what they, they are comfortable to do. So flesh is either lazy, I'm going to take what others have, or it's going to try and earn it by doing what is comfortable. But it will not rise up to the challenge of what it is called for. Flesh type of faith cannot rise up to the challenge of what's called for, and that's why you'll fail. But the begging compulsion arises when we leave word-based hope for another kind of hope, putting our faith in something other than God's word. If you get into flesh faith, you have left Bible-based hope. Bible-based faith empowers Bible-based hope. If you get the hope wrong, if you begin to go after another kind of hope, you have presumed that God would do this. You have presumed that God would, would uh, help you in this way if you did this. Your faith, Bible-based faith, is no longer engaged. It's now a flesh faith. Now, why are they begging Jesus to heal him? Did you ever ask that question? If you are going to beg somebody to do something, somehow this benefits you. Isn't that right? Somehow I get some benefit out of this. So I began to think about this. What is the benefit for, this, for these people that are doing the begging? So I came up with this. This man was either somehow important to them or just a burden on them. He was either important in that he brought something to them before he had this problem. And they want to get that back again. Or, he's a burden to them. we got to keep taking care of this guy because he can't take care of himself. And we don't want to take care of him anymore. So they're begging Jesus for probably selfish reasons. Either, I don't want him to be a burden to me anymore, 
would you heal him so he can take care of himself? Or, I used to get something from this guy, something that helped me, and I'm not getting it anymore, and I would like to receive that back again. Would you heal him? Somehow, they, they, they are getting, they want to return to getting something or to not having this burden. Don't know which one it is because it doesn't tell us. Now, their hope is not in who Jesus was. They're not basing any of this hope on who Jesus was. The uh, Syrophoenician woman we just looked at, she based it on who Jesus was. The centurion based his faith on who Jesus was. I know who you are. And I know I'm a man of authority too. If you just say, it'll happen. The woman with the issue of blood, she based her hope on what Jesus had done. She heard what he had done other places. They just touched the hem of his garment. They got healed. Well, I can do that. So she based her hope on what Jesus had done. There's the nobleman. He based his hope and the faith that he had for that on the words that Jesus would speak. He didn't come there that way. He came there bringing, wanting to bring Jesus back. But Jesus said, nope, go your way, your son lives. So he now had to change and have that hope for the words that Jesus spoke instead of for Jesus making the trip. And he made the switch. And it worked out for him. That's not where these folks are. They want to get rid of something or gain something back that they lost. They have a burden. They don't want this burden anymore. Jesus, help us out. Heal this guy. Then he's not a burden for us. Now, other people came to Jesus with a similar wrong hope. And we're, that's why we're looking at all these stories of healing encounters. But Jesus' response and his commands were set to pull them out of the wrong hope and put them in the right hope. Now, if they didn't follow it, then he'd get healed. I'm sure there's a whole lot of people that Jesus encountered tried to get them out of that flesh hope and put them into the right hope and they, re- they refused to do whatever Jesus said. Just like that's the uh, guy who's the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. If he doesn't respond to what Jesus says, we don't have a story. But he did. Now we know that Jesus puts these, he gets this, this man away from the people. And perhaps he feels like these people would not get to the place where they needed to be. And so let's just pull us away. Remember Jairus' daughter? Put him out. There's some people you don't need in your room. Get them out. It's not time to fix them. You fix them later. Maybe they might listen to it. Maybe they won't. Now I wrote this down because I want to make sure I got this right. I know it's not for you in, in your outline though. But if you are in begging mode... Your hope is out of order and what faith you may have cannot align with it. So a different kind of faith arises even if you have been taught word-based faith. You are in begging mode. Your hope is out of order. And what faith you may have. You may have faith. you got a faith that's going on there. But that faith cannot align with that kind of hope. So what happens is another faith rises up to take the place of the Bible-based faith because the Bible-based faith can't get a hold of the non-Bible-based hope. You're in begging mode. So this other faith rises up. For a lot of people, they never see the difference. And that new hope that rises up becomes their substitute for Bible-based faith. Now here's why the devil loves this. Because he can keep feeding you the wrong hope and you try and empower it with faith that can't do anything for it. And hope fails. And you become discouraged. Because hope doesn't amount to anything. And you begin to think that Bible-based hope and Bible-based faith does not work for me. Because what happened was your faith got changed. Your hope got changed. When that hope went off in another area, your faith couldn't empower it. So another faith rose up. And it's a flesh faith. And you, many times, people do not realize the difference. If you are reading through the the New Testament with us on our chapter a week, I hope you are. If you're not, start it up. Just start right, just start this week. Don't worry about catching up. Just start this week and get going. 
But in our reading, when we get over to Galatians chapter 4, you're going to see that Paul begins to talk about the weak and beggarly elements that bring you into bondage. That's what this is. You get into the begging, it's going to bring you into bondage and you don't even know you're brought into bondage. He's going to teach a little bit on that. Well, I ask this question. What are the reasons to get him away from the crowd? What are the reasons? Why does Jesus take him away from the crowd? First off, there's words of doubt in the atmosphere. Atmosphere is important. And right here, in this atmosphere, we got words of doubt. We don't need to have that. That's one reason that you get people away from the crowd. Because they're speaking doubt. They, they can speak whatever doubt they want to. I just want to get out of the hearing of it. They cannot. People who speak doubt cannot negate your faith. I don't care how hard they try. Cannot do it. But if they get that atmosphere charged, you can start negating your own faith. Just get away from it. Expectations of failure. We begin to expect failure. That's a corrupted hope. We don't need to have that in there. Sometimes people will tell you what they did to have success or failure. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I like to learn from people's experience. I like to hear people who went through something similar. What did you go through? What happened? How did that go? And that can be fine, but you have to understand this. If God tells you, if God commands you something, and you follow what someone else did instead, that's going to be an obstacle. you got to make sure that if God gives you a command, I don't care what other people did, you do it. This is the way God said for me to go. It may be that this man had faced ridicule from the people that are in the crowd. How many times have you heard people who talk funny, have an impediment in their speech, and they're made fun of by the people that are around them? That's not a great atmosphere to be in. And if that was going on, and he might be facing some of this, he might be just a little uneasy. Jesus says, look, let's take you on out over here. Let's get you away from the crowd. So he takes them away from the crowd. That could be the the main reason that he did it. Could be credit or condemnation. Other people like to take credit for your success and condemn your failure. Well, you didn't follow what I told you to do. That's why you failed. Well, you did what I told you to do. So I, I have a stake in that success. It might also be just simply observation and in- imitation. I want to hide. Jesus wants to hide the healing from them so that they don't know what went on. All they see is the final result. So we look at why remove the multitude, what made them do it before? Well, before they could speak doubt. You cannot speak doubt to a deaf man. He can't hear you. That can't be the reason. But he also couldn't hear any commands that Jesus would give him. I don't know if Jesus was uh, taught sign language. It would seem to be pointless because most of the deaf people he encountered, he'd just heal them. So no reason to, to do that. I don't know what he would do with that. But he removed the multitude from seeing this miracle in its process. The multitude has been removed from seeing this miracle in its process. And so we go on into, into this. So let's just, let me read you the Weiss translation on this. And again, having gone out of the region of Tyre, he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the region of Decapolis. And they, and they, bringing to him one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty, and they begged him to place upon him his hand. They wanted him to lay hands on him. They had the method. They had the process of what they wanted him to do. Just lay your hands on him. I've seen you do this before. Just lay your hands on him. Please lay your hands on him. I know he'll be healed. Just lay your hands on him. Jesus doesn't lay hands on them. He's got another another thing to go. And so we get to verse 33. And he took him aside from the multitude. Now my question when I saw this is, what kept the multitude from following? If Jesus is going to take the man away from the multitude, what keeps the multitude from following Jesus where he is? They followed Jesus before. I don't know. It doesn't tell us what it was. But I can begin to surmise some of this. Maybe some of the people who were begging Jesus to heal him said, oh, you all stay back here. Jesus said he wants to be alone. He wants to take the man away. Maybe they are so desperate to get back whatever it was they had before or to lose the burden they have now, they stand under interference. We'll keep them back, Jesus. 
They don't care about seeing it. They don't care anything about the miracle. All they want is to have this burden removed or restored whatever it is that they lost. Maybe some of the disciples kept them back. Maybe they stood guard. Or maybe here's a third option. I don't think this is too probable. Maybe the crowd just stayed back because Jesus said so. (laughs) I hear those groans. Yeah, that doesn't happen too often, does it? I think there was something in place that kept the crowd back because people just don't seem to obey and do what they're supposed to do. Something came on and kept them back. But, let me tell you, if you have ever had a picture of this, of Jesus taking the man aside by himself to minister to him. How many have ever had that picture? Jesus, multitudes over here. Jesus says, I need to get this guy by himself. And Jesus takes this guy over here by himself and ministers to him. If you think that's the picture, I will guarantee you that is wrong. Let's read read some more of this. I put this in your outline for you. Jesus took him away from the multitude, but not from everybody. He took him away from the multitude, but he didn't take him away from everybody. If he did, if Jesus took him away from everybody, and it's just Jesus and the man, then how do we have the detail on how he was healed? Now, here's the thing about the detail. This miracle is only recorded in one gospel, Mark. Matthew covers a little bit of this, but he jumbles all the miracles together. Talks about deaf and dumb people being being healed. Kind of just jumbles them all together, which tells me this. Matthew wasn't there. When Jesus pulled this man away from the multitude, Matthew did not go with him. But Mark's gospel covers it. Now, you all know this. If there's a detail in Mark's gospel, who did it come from? Everybody remember? comes from Peter. This tells me this. Peter was there. Peter was there with the miracle happening in front of him. What I don't know is, did Jesus take Peter, James, and John? Or did he just take Peter? Now notice, if you go through the Gospel of John, you'll notice he does not record this miracle. That doesn't mean John wasn't there. But he did not record it. Peter is the one who relays this, and Mark is the one who writes it down. We got details in this, though, about the fingers and the ears and the spitting on the finger and touching the tongue and the groaning. That's a lot of detail. Somebody was there. The other guys, they may have heard about this, but they write what they saw. They're supposed to be witnesses. Peter was a witness. He saw it. This is what I saw. This is what went down. So Peter was there. How many others were there? I don't know. The place of Matthew is in Matthew 15, 29 through 31, if you ever want to look that up. Three verses, and he kind of just jumbles all these things together. Verse 33 again. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. So he's speaking Aramaic to him. He's speaking in a Jewish tongue in, in, in saying this. But how many have ever wondered about this? Why does Jesus put his fingers in his ears and spit and touch his tongue? He doesn't do this in other miracles, does he? One time he spit in the ground, made some clay, spread it on the guy's eyes. But here, he goes up. Now, the the Greek is worded this way. I checked it out to make sure. The Greek is worded in such a way that he actually takes his, it uses the word balo, which is to throw, He takes his fingers and throws them into his ears. Right and left. Both both ears. Right into the ears. And then he spits. I imagine he spit on his finger, spit on his hand. And then he reaches out and touches his tongue. Now, think about this. If a perfect stranger came up to you, spit on their hand and reached out to touch your tongue, what are you doing? (laughs) How many are pulling back a little bit from that? (laughs) No, no, no. You're not going to touch me with that spit. (laughs) 
no, I don't want to have that going on. But apparently the man doesn't do that. He, he stands there and, and he lets Jesus touch his tongue. Now, the man is not healed because Jesus put his hands or his fingers in his ears and spits on his tongue. Because he does those things, he accomplishes those things, and there is no healing. So why does Jesus do this? Look at verse 34 again. He's already put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven. How many times does he do this? Lazarus come forth. Doesn't he look up to heaven for that one? Aren't too many times he looks up to heaven before a miracle, does it? But he looks up to heaven. Go back on this. Miracle with Lazarus. Why does Jesus look up to heaven? With the miracle of, Jesus, of, of Lazarus, raising him from the dead. I'm, I'm drawing on your memory here because we're not pulling it up on the screen. You can go, uh, John chapter 11, I believe, is where, if you want to go back and look at this. He looks up to heaven and he says, Father, I thank you that you hear me always. And then he says, I don't say this for my benefit. He said it for whose benefit? The crowd. He wants the crowd to know, I'm under you, and this is coming from you. So why do you think he looks up to heaven now? Folks, we have a deaf man. Jesus can't speak to him and tell him things. So he is using a form of sign language that this man can understand. I don't know that Jesus knows sign language. I don't know that he went to deaf school and learned all that sort of stuff. But what he's doing here right now is he's pulled this guy aside. He's got some people with him. And I will, I will show you more than Peter is here. I can prove it to you from the scripture. There is more than Peter here. We'll get to that though. That's later on down in the, in the scripture. So this man... He's been ridiculed by the people that are around him because of his, his speech impediment. He can't do some of the things. And I think more than likely the people that are begging see him as a burden. And he has, feels like a burden. And Jesus brings him alongside, away from all those, all those folks. And what he does is he comes up and he's setting the man. I'm telling you what we're going to do. First off, your ears. We're going to take care of your ears. And he touches them. And I'm going to take care of that tongue of yours. Now, if you're going to touch this person's tongue, they have to help. They got to stick that tongue out. And so Jesus may have spit on his hand and held it up to his mouth. And the man would have had to open up his mouth and stick his tongue out. And then Jesus would have touched it. And so now he has set the expectation taking care of your ears and taking care of your mouth your tongue why does Jesus sigh I asked myself this question quite a few times going over these weeks why does Jesus sigh first off it's included in the text which means it has some importance. It's not just written down there because, uh, well, Jesus, you know, he burped. It's, it's, this is not what it's... There's something about this. We're recording the details of this for a reason. The fingers in the ears, the touching of the tongue. <sighs> Looking up to heaven. What in the world does that sigh communicate? Well, I've been thinking about this for a little bit. Jesus looks up to heaven. This man has been ridiculed. This man has been seen as a burden. This man has not been a good part of society for a long time. Probably doesn't feel real good about himself. Probably doesn't like to be out there in public. And doesn't think that anybody cares about him at all. These people that are begging, they're probably doing for some reason something they want to gain and I'll bet he knows it. And Jesus pulls him aside from all those people. We're not putting on a show here. I'm pulling you aside. This is what I'm going to do. We're going to minister to your ears. We're going to minister to your tongue. And this is coming from God. And he lets this man know in this sigh, 
I'm not doing this because you're a burden. I'm not doing this for the reason that I care for you. I'm sad that you're in this state. But we're going to change it. This man is still in the same condition he was when Jesus pulled him away. But then, oh, look at this. He says, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened. When were his ears opened? When Jesus said it. Not when he touched him. When was his tongue opened? When Jesus said it. Not when he touched him. So why go through all this stuff with the touching? So I began to think about this and I got a picture. Anybody ever seen one of those demolitions where the building comes down? Isn't that cool? I love looking at that. But you know, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes in beforehand. You got to take all the charges and you know, you got to be an engineer and know how to de-engineer the thing. And so you got to know where to place the charges. And so you, all those weeks before you're going in the building, you're placing the charges in all the right spot, right? So that everything is set up and ready. And then the day comes and the announcement is made so everybody knows and people come and they watch and news cameras come and they, they look at the thing. And then they, they have the igniter button. And then they push the igniter button and it starts a chain reaction. They all don't go off at the same time. They have to go off different times. But they're all set. You push the one button. As far as I know anyway, you push the one button and then everything else is set off. This one is time. This one is time so that they all go off at the right time and then the thing collapses and, and it's just an incredible thing to watch and see. But you see, you could set all those charges in the building and nothing happens until you press the igniter. But you could press that igniter all you want to every day of the week and it doesn't do anything unless the charges are set. So I ask myself this, is Jesus setting the charges? Is Jesus just merely setting the charge? This is where I'm going to work. This is where I'm going to work. Ready? Bang! Be open. Because the Word of God says, immediately, immediately, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. I have no reason to believe from the way the Greek words this that these things happen in succession. His ears first and then his tongue. I have every reason to believe from the Greek that these things happen both at the same time. Bam. Be opened. Reese puts it this way. And having taken him away from the crowd in private, he put his fingers in his ears and having spit, he touched his tongue. And having looked up into heaven, he groaned and says to him, If fatha, which is be open, and his ears open, and immediately that which bound his tongue was loosed. That which bound his tongue, there was something that bound his tongue was loosed. And he began to be enunciating correctly. Now we said this man is not blind. He sees what Jesus does. He saw him spit. This seems to be the way that Jesus was able to communicate with the man what it was that he was going to, to do. Well, many people speak about hearing and speaking. But it's always done in this order. Hear first, speak. Jesus would talk about himself. I hear what the Father says, and then I speak it. We got to make sure we do those. Too many Christians have empty words. They haven't heard first. Everything about this miracle is always addressing the hearing first, and then the speaking. If we attempt to speak before we hear, those words are empty. You'll lead those people that hear away from the things of God. 
How many of you saw the, the cartoon we put in there? Lucy's making up truth. A whole lot of people out there, they haven't heard. They just make up truth. They just make up stuff and they say it. They didn't hear anything first. The news people, they, some, they sometimes just hear things. I've, I heard one person put it this way. The news people validate themselves by themselves. A person puts out a tweet. Because it's a tweet, therefore we can... That's a story. Well, so-and-so tweeted this, and therefore... And they build a whole story off of that. But there was no facts. There was nothing actually true that went behind that. you got to make sure that you straighten those things out. We saw, you know, even uh, this week with uh, uh, Jolly Jr.'s untimely passing. Boy, I tell you what, that's not something any of us necessarily saw coming. Uh, and people will, de- you will, will develop... Uh, doctrines people will come up with things and people will say things to comfort people well you know god just must have had a better way it, no hear first before you open up your mouth hear what the word of god is hear what the spirit of god is saying first if he hasn't said anything to you then shut up you don't need to speak anything about that you know some of the people that i i listen to the most and if i'm going to sit down and just listen to somebody uh, it's generally going to have the last name of Hagen, Price, Caps, or Renner. That's the main main people I listen to. Hagen, Price, Caps, and Renner. I listen to other people. But you see, there's something about these guys and even some people that went before them that kind of just uh, went off in, in some areas, but they, they had been there for, for a bit. One of the things that, that they would do, and uh, I think of, of all of them, Brother Price is one of the best at this. I love how he does this. He would always take what the word says and apply it to life. Faith, foolishness, presumption. That series was just a, that's a kingpin on that. He just, that's about all it was. Taking what the word says and applying it to life. Loved how he did that. Brother Hagin would do the same thing. Brother Rick Renner, he does that. Brother Caps, I mean, come on. He's taking what the word says and telling you how to apply it to the things you face in life. I love that that aspect. There's a whole lot of other people that preach the gospel, uh, say they preach the gospel, but what they're doing is they're taking life and applying it to the gospel. That's not how we do it. You got to understand the word first, and then understand what it is. You'll notice the thing that I'll do in, in in here with you all. Been doing it for decades now. Is I will teach you what the word says. At the end, I'll show you some places you can apply it, but I don't expect that to be it. I expect to teach you what the Word says so that you know what the Word says, and when the situation comes up, you can speak what you know to your situation. Change your situation. But if you don't know what the Word says, all you know is some application, then you don't, you don't have that. The most important thing in, the, in our life is to learn what the Word says says the most you cannot replace it with anything else that is the number one thing that we have to do in life we're going to have situations that occur and i don't understand them but i walk in the light of what i have learned not in the darkness of what i don't understand how many remember this this phrase from from um, uh, pastor adrian uh, yeah <laughs> almost forgot his name there um, never forget in the dark what you learned in the light Never forget. I love that phrase. That is just so good. Because when we get into those dark times in life, we're not quite sure what's going on. Don't forget what you learned in the light. Hang on to it. How about uh, uh, Apostle Hilliard? Facts can change. Truth will not. Oh, I love that. This might be the fact today, but facts change. Right? The disciples are out there in the boat in the storm. That was a fact. Then all of a sudden... They were on the shore. That's not the one going over to the gatherings. That's another time that, uh, that they were there. They were on a stormy water. That was a fact. But then all of a sudden they weren't. Facts change. Lazarus was dead. That was a fact. But that fact changed. I love that, uh, that teaching from him. That was, that was outstanding. We understand how Jesus ministers healing. In this particular thing, the cause was not a demon. Did you notice that? 
sometimes he faces somebody who was dumb or had a speech impediment or somehow their tongue was, was bothered or they were deaf and he'd cast out a demon. But he didn't do it here. He didn't cast out a demon on this one. You've got to know what the cause of the thing is. You've got to hear from the Spirit of God. This is what it is. This man, his hope was when he's over there with the crowd, we're gonna, we are gonna take you to Jesus and we are gonna plead with him and beg him until he does what we ask him to do. Jesus had to get him away from that group. Get him over to somebody else. No, 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 we gotta get you away from that. I, I don't want you thinking about me this way. This is not how we're, we're not doing it what they, the way they said. I think that's why the laying on the hands didn't, he, didn't heal this man. Because she said, no, 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 that's not how we're doing it. That's what they're begging for. So we're not doing what they're begging for. We're going in in another direction. You see, when you get hope that is based on the Bible, no matter what comes to your reasoning, it will not throw it. It won't throw it. It can't be tipped. If you get Bible hope, no matter what bad report comes in, it won't throw it. No, I know what the Word of God said. I know what God said. This is what Jesus was trying to get the disciples to understand. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be beaten. And I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to raise. I'm going to be raised up. He's telling them this. He's trying to get their hope on this. But their hope was based on natural stuff. And their hope was based that Jesus is alive and Jesus is going to become the king. No, no, no. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised. This is going to be great. But they couldn't hear it. And so when Jesus was crucified, what happened to him? Became devastated. Because their hope was in the wrong area. Even though Jesus gave them that word. He gave them that word. And that's, that's why. And no matter what it is that comes into your life, it'll be the same way. Don't let your hope get altered. Stay with it. Stay with whatever it is that God said. You know, some of the things you know that I'm, I'm going through with this. You know, every week we meet with a, well, not every week, but some week we meet with a new doctor. And this week we met with another new doctor. And uh, I told you that, you know, way back in the beginning, we let this thing go. I had one procedure. That was done. I have a second one. They were, they were lining up. And there was a potential for a third. So when they did all the scans, they ruled out the third. But they have not ruled out the second. So we, all right, we got to go after this second one and, and, and hit this one. And so, um, we met with the doctor who would be performing that particular thing. And, uh, uh, he laid out pretty much the whole scenario. And my wife didn't like hearing that. And, and so he was, he was, it's, it was, it's, it's more involved than anything I've ever gone through so far. It's a very involved procedure and it's a very, um, taxing procedure. Uh, but, you know, he told me, that's, that's fine, we're, we're good. Because my hope is, based on what the Word of God says, and I know I'm coming through this. Now, the, the, the way that they lay it out, they're not as sure. <laughs> not as sure that it'll work. Whenever this whole thing was first going on, they were so unsure, they weren't even sure if I was already past the point of no return. They actually thought I was. They were concerned. And they were... <laughs> Just the way they were talking to me, it's like, you think I'm dead already, don't you? <laughs> and I, I just smiled on and on, and we, we went through the thing, and they found out, okay, we, we did get it in time, but we really have to move, move fast on this thing. So they're still moving fast and trying to do things because they know, you know, they, and the way they're looking at it, they have to move through this thing through fast. So right now there's debate, do we do this first or do we do this first? And really all it does is change the chances by a little tiny bit, but they're looking for every bit of thing that they can. And I'm, my wife says, what way do you want to go? I said, I don't care. Whatever way they're comfortable with. Because I'm comfortable either way. <laughs> I'm good either way. It just does, it doesn't throw me. It doesn't matter to me. Hey, you want to do that one first? That's fine. Do that one first. You want to do this way? That's fine. Do that one first. Don't matter. I am coming out on the other side. I have no doubt about that. That's, uh, that's just the way it's going to be. It's just, it's just, I get upset at the, oh, I got to go through all this and lose all this time and all this sort of stuff. And I don't like that part of it. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's all right. So, you know, there, there's more things that come up. But I will ask you to do this. If you have any questions, ask me. Don't ask my wife. It is really hard on her. 
It is not hard on me at all. I just laugh at it. It's just it's no big deal. But, you know, when something's happening to you, it's a different thing than when something's happening to someone else. So if you have any questions on it, if you want to, if I feel like giving the answer, <laughs> no, I, I, I may give you, give you some answers on it. But uh, most of the stuff I've, I've told you about, there's still some things that are up in the air. We're just not sure of oh, all that sort of thing. But um, it's hard for her. So if you can, just uh, don't ask her. Ask me. And I'll be happy to, to deal with it. Because it's not hard for me to answer you. But it is, it is, I know it does take a toll on her. So if you can do me, do me that favor. Now, if you deal with a demonic cause in a natural way, you will not have positive results. If you look at everything as a demonic cause, or you, if, it's, if a thing has a demonic cause, and you look at it, now nah, we're just going to play with this in the natural, there's no demonic cause. You've got, you're deaf, and uh, we're just going to try and treat the deafness, but there's a demonic cause. You can treat the deafness all you want to. It's not going to do any good. But you cast out that demon spirit, it'll open it right up. Now, if you said, well, before it was a demon spirit, that's just cast the demon spirit off. But if a demon spirit's not behind it, there's a natural cause, it's not going to do any good. It is amazing to me that every time Jesus walks into one of these situations, he picks up exactly what it is. Oh, demon. All right, let's take care of that. Brother Hagen told us that, well, Brother, um, actually when he's, Lord was ministering to him about the healing anointing that was on him and told him some things. He says, look, if you touch, and I don't remember all the details. It's been a little while since I heard that story. But he told him, if you touch a person, and I think it was, if you feel that power just bounce back at you or not, to, not go through in a certain way, there's a demon spirit involved. Cast it out. And so that's how he was able to, to understand and to know uh, how Jesus did, I don't know. He doesn't tell us in the, in the scriptures how it was. But it seems like whatever was going on, he knew. Demon spirit, cast it out. Not demon spirit. All right, let's put my fingers in his ears. He just seemed to, to know what was going on. Now there's a story down the road. We'll get into more of that later on. You can't deal with natural as if it was demonic, and you can't deal with what is demonic as if it is natural. Now, I already gave you this one, but I'll read it out for you. The healing miracle does not occur when Jesus touches the man, but when he speaks the words. And did Jesus' action set the charges in the man for the igniter of the words he was about to speak? Those words were going to ignite something. Now think about this. Did the words of Peter in Acts chapter 4 set the charge for the igniter of the actions when he reached down and pulled the man up? How many times can you think of the Jesus or somebody set a charge before an igniter was given? Maybe you haven't looked at all the stories in this way, but you can go back on through and see what you can see what you can find out. What are we doing to set the charges for the power of faith to work in our life? Or are we just pressing the igniter? A whole lot of folks, they know about the faith message. They sit there and they press the igniter button all the day, all day long. But if you don't set any charges, it's not going to do anything. All right, let's go on here. This verse is interesting. Verse 36. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. He commanded who? Them. Them's plural, right? Now, neither James, Peter, or Mark are messed up in their pronouns. They don't have all that pronoun ridiculous stuff going on. He, her, him, him, whatever. They don't have all that stuff going on. So when they say they and them, they mean they and them. Multiple people that are there. So Jesus says to them. He commands them. Who are them? You see, if Jesus pulled him away from the multitude, the multitude is not them. Right? Because he's pulled them away. So that tells me this. When Jesus pulled him away from the multitude, Peter came along. Maybe James and John came along. Maybe there were some other disciples there. But he did not command his disciples this. Who's he commanding? The people. There were some other people that were allowed to come along to see this miracle beside the man and beside Peter. 
And when he got done, it says, and he commanded them that they should tell no one. Now, that next part of that verse is real interesting. Look at that. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. (laughs) It's going the wrong direction. That tells me, and this is backed up by the Greek in this, that tells me this. He didn't just say it one time, don't tell anybody about this. He didn't just say it one time. He said it, and then they went off and started telling people. And so he comes back to them, yo, stop telling people. And they went out and told more people. And he found them again. Stop telling people. And they went out and they did it again. The more he committed, that's not telling them twice, is it? That's telling them multiple times. Jesus sought them out multiple times to tell them to stop. But they proclaimed it more widely. Just kept going. So he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now this word here, Astonished beyond measure. I saw one Greek uh, note on this thing. They said, uh, Mark actually invents a Greek word to describe this. Because they had never seen someone so in bewilderment, such in wonder at what had gone on here. They were so over the top, for whatever the reason, this miracle set them, wow. This is the region where thousands of demon spirits were cast out and went into the pigs. And that man proclaimed what happened to him. These are the people who were so amazed by what Jesus had done there with the pigs and the demon spirits that they said, you got to get out of here. And now he's back in their area. Not that exact spot, but he's back in the, in the area. And they see this. Wow! What the, he invents a word to try and describe how majestic their reaction is. Reese puts this translation this way. And he, speaking of Jesus, and in his own interest, Jesus did this, the way it is worded, he did this for his own interest. Commanded them to be saying, not even one thing. But the more he kept on commanding them, they themselves kept on proclaiming it. Publicly, so much the more to a greater degree. And they were completely flabbergasted and that in a superabundant degree, which itself was augmented by the addition of more astonishment. <laughs> That's what Weiss does to try and get you to understand those words, these words that Mark put together to invent this phrase. Let me read that for you again. And they were completely flabbergasted and that in a superabundant degree, which itself was augmented by the addition of more astonishment, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to be hearing and the dumb to be speaking. Well, once we hear the words of Jesus, we can speak the words of life. When Jesus heard what the Father would say, he would speak words of life. Proverbs 4, Proverbs 2, they tell you an awful lot about hearing what wisdom comes from God, pursuing it. Because when you have that on the inside of you, then you can speak from that. But instead of having that as our influence, we have other things that come in as our influence. Because what you take in Influences what you will put out. What happens if you give in to gossip, doubt, unworthiness, strife? What happens if you don't give attention to love, faith, the right kind of fellowship? What happens if you give attention to reason and you don't let the revelation of God speak to that reason? It's going to influence the kind of words that you had to say. Now, just as in this picture here, most people do what they, basically what they want. Most people do what they desire or want, even when contrary to what God says. 
These folks are amazed at what Jesus is doing. And yet he keeps saying, stop spreading the word. They go out and spread more. I put this in your outline for you. People can be in awe of God and remain disobedient to God. Isn't that what these people are? They are in awe of God. And yet they remain disobedient to Him. That's a lot of Christians today. We can be in awe of God. But we want to do our own thing. I may be in awe of God, but I'm going to extract the meaning that I'm most comfortable with from His Word. I don't like that people say that that means this. I'm going to find something I'm more comfortable with and go with that. Maybe they reason a better way to have rendered it. Well, if God would have just put it this way, we would understand it better and we'd be able to do it better or whatever it might be. We don't want to do it. So I ask this question and we'll end on this. What brings and keeps us obedient to Jesus' commands? What is it? What brings and keeps us obedient to Jesus' command? What brings me to the point that I will obey His command and what keeps me there? Because we got some Christians that got some trouble in this. I wrote down four things. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. You can probably add some more things to it later on. I just, I'm giving you four. Here's the first one. Our trust in Him. He knows more than we do and His Word is true. Trust. Remember in the garden? We're messing with the trust. Did God really say? No. God said it. His Word is true. I know that God knows more about the situation than I do. So I'm going to do it. Did you ever leave instructions with someone on how to fix something in their house or how to fix something and where they're at? And all right, well, I got to go, but this is what you got to do. And then you go away and they, you come back and it's all broken up, all messed up. I, I, but I told you what to do. Yeah, but I was thinking that if I did it this way, they didn't trust you. Our trust in Him. You've got that trust in God. Whatever He says, you'll do it. See, those people in this story, I can't figure out why He doesn't want me to... To, to say this. Why would he not want me to talk about it? One of the, one, probably one of the main reasons for this is Jesus' ministry was to teach and to bring light to those who were in darkness. And if all they would do is come and want to be healed all the time, he wouldn't be able to teach them. He wanted to come in here and teach them. Brother Hagin would tell us that he would go into a meeting he, when he was doing the church meetings. He'd, he'd uh, be in there. Three weeks was a minimum for him. He'd sometimes go five, six, seven weeks in the same place. And he said it took usually two, three weeks before we'd see the first miracle. Two, three weeks of teaching before we'd see the first miracle. They didn't trust what Jesus said. Here's the second one, our belief in him. His wisdom is above our wisdom. Not only does he know more about the situation and what's going on ahead, but what he says is wise. I, I may not understand it, but his wisdom is above my wisdom. I believe him. Here's the third, our love. I put in there parentheses, agape, that kind of love. Our love for him. Not another kind of love and not just in all of him, but an agape love. And here's the fourth one, our reliance upon him. Faith in him and his name. You get these four things going on in your life, you're going to find out it will bring you to the point that you will obey the things that Jesus commands and you will stay there. You will stay obeying His commands. Would you all stand up with me? Well, Father, it's important that we not only hear what you say, but that we obey it. That we trust you, that we believe in you, and we love you. And that we rely on you. We want to be those that are brought to the point of obeying your commands and we don't get moved off of it. We stay right there. Father, I thank you for the help that you give us. That you keep us. You watch over us. And I thank you that you do. There are things that are coming up People are going to try and deceive us. People are going to try and question us. People are going to try and get us to not trust you, to not believe in you, to not love you, to not rely on you. 
There are things that will happen in this world that we do not understand. And the enemy will try and rock us. Well, if you don't understand that, the whole thing must be wrong. But no. There are going to be many things that happen in this world and we will not understand them. But that's okay. We walk in the light of what we understand. And I thank you that we can do that. Give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you can bring yourself to a place that you look at your own life. How am I doing in the area of trust? How am I doing in my area of belief? How am I doing in my love for God? We know that the Word of God says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. How am I doing when relying on Him? Is my hope truly based on what the Word of God has promised me, what the Word of God has told me? Or has it shifted? Has it become based on something else? Because that hope will be torn down. That hope will be dashed to pieces. That hope will not last. But the hope that comes from His Word, that will. And the faith that comes from His Word is what will empower that hope. Well, this week, we have a video teaching coming from Adrian Rogers. It's entitled, People God Uses people God uses uses uh, examples of David Gideon looks at people that were flawed but God used them some of the quotes I had from this he, uh, he quoted Winston Churchill we must be ready in our weakest possible moment to meet anything the enemy brings against us at his strongest possible moment one of the things that uh He said himself, sin is often an unexpected opportunity on an unprotected life and an undetected weakness. God will use you. You don't have to become perfect for it. But get your hope in the right area. Then the faith that you're learning will empower it. If we fall off and we begin to go off into the wrong hope and the wrong faith undetected by us begins to empower that wrong hope and all the things we learn about faith don't seem to apply to the faith that we have but you can get all that stuff shaken off get yourself in a place like Gideon Gideon was a man he had the wrong hope he had the wrong faith but he sure got it corrected pretty quick and God used him And if God used him, God will use you, and God will use me. Glory to God for that. Wednesday night we pick up with the series on Nehemiah. We're in chapter 8. We'll give you some more summary on that probably in uh, Facebook. Uh, Alert you on the things that are going on with that. Uh, But we'll be picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. And we'll be, be having that go on. Bless some of the people that are around you. Make sure you greet them. Thanks for joining us here this morning.